You're tuned in to the Manjeet Minhas podcast. The world of business is a challenging one. From the youngest entrepreneurs to the biggest and most respected names across Canada, you need to have a strong will, determination, and skills to navigate to the top. I'll be talking to everyone from budding entrepreneurs to the established leaders in the world of business. You'll hear their stories of where they were, where they are, and where they're going. I'm Manjeet Minhas, and this is my podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Manjeet Minhas podcast. On today's episode, I'm going to keep it all in the family. I'm going to speak to my brother and co-founder, Ravinder Minhas. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about our lives growing up and how we eventually launched into the world of business and some of the other things he does without me. Welcome to the show, Ravinder. Thank you. Uh, I think you should have introduced me as your more charismatic, beautiful, and brains of the operations and older sibling. But oh, anyway, uh, your intro wasn't bad. All of that was false, especially the last part of that. Um, <laughs> I didn't say younger baby brother, but yes. So I guess we should start back there. Let's start back as far as you can remember, being born in my shadow, that um, growing up in Calgary, kind of what schooling... Um, and what you thought your life was uh, going to be like? Sure. So I, I guess I'll admit to your audience that uh, I'm, uh, I'm actually younger, although we don't admit that in public. I may have like a foot and a half on you. So it, uh, it helps when I say I'm older. But you mentioned it's actually, what, you're 18 months or 20 mm-hmm. months older than I am. So almost two years older than I am. I'm born and raised in Calgary. And basically, after mom and dad had me, they had perfection. So they decided that there wasn't <laughs> necessary for a third. So It's just the two of us. Manji's the older sibling. I'm the younger sibling. I did all my schooling here, including my post-secondary education, which I did at the University of Calgary and did uh, engineering. So why engineering? Why why did you think that you wanted to be a petroleum engineer? First and foremost is because our father is a petroleum engineer. He was a mechanical engineer from the University of Calgary. So it felt very comfortable and something that I I felt I knew well. So math, I was good at. Physics, I was good at. Chemistry, I was decent at. And frankly, English, I wasn't the greatest at. So it seemed like a linear path. And being from Calgary and and born and raised here, the dream was always to work for a large uh, oil and gas or service company in the industry that always seemed to be booming in our city. So it seemed like the most logical place to go. Funny enough, when I went to University of C and and you were ahead of me in, in, in engineering, it was the dot-com bubble had bursted a few years before. So computer science, electrical engineering, computer engineering all seemed like really bad paths and ways to go. So it just seemed very lucrative and exciting to get into oil and gas engineering. In fact, when dad had decided to go to the University of Calgary and did a mechanical engineering degree, because they did not recognize his degree coming from India, married mom in Vancouver Island in Duncan, and then University of Calgary actually gave him the least number of years he had to repeat to get his degree, he came to Calgary. And that's how our family ended up in Calgary from uh, Vancouver and Vancouver Island. But in fact, dad lobbied for the University of Calgary to have an engineering program that was based around petroleum and oil and gas. And it took, what, 20 years or 25 years, really, in the end to see the first graduate and had a program called Oil and Gas Engineering. And so what part of engineering... Did you really connect with the problem solving part, the getting oil and gas out of the ground and being able to use it for something? What part of engineering did you resonated with you, especially petroleum? And then what part of that do you think that you have 
used and kept today? Because a lot of people say, oh, jokingly, engineering, beer, what a direct line. But I think, <laughs> but I think there yeah. actually is more than meets the eye sometimes in having an engineering education and and making beer for a living. Well, yeah, absolutely there is. And I, and I think that the joke is, is that engineers drink a lot of beer. And you know what? That's probably true. <laughs> it seems like it's not to typecast, but you know, we get into engineering because you're good in certain subjects and you kind of have a logical way of thinking. So for me, I always felt that I had a, uh, I, ha- I have tack problems A through Z. So I have, I have a systematic approach through it and engineering kind of fed me in that way. And I didn't necessarily think that I was the most creative person. I definitely did not think that I'd be geared towards sales. And if we're 100 foot frank, I'm probably more introverted than any of the world actually understands who I am. So for, in, for me, engineering sounded, that sounded exciting. And also the challenges of tertiary recovery, heavy oil, oil sands, efficiencies, all those things excite me in a really weird way. As we, I was going to university, I suddenly started to see it. And of course, we were in the early years of our business then is that I actually really was gravitating towards marketing. I was gravitating towards um, structures and infrastructures. And so now suddenly those things are interesting to me. And before the sales part of it or marketing never wasn't something I was really excited by versus the other parts of the business. So as I got older and maybe a little bit more mature, I kind of discovered that hmm, maybe I actually like some of those other aspects that I didn't necessarily think I did when I started the engineering degree. So it opened my mind to other things, but it, for me, there was, I never had a notion that I wanted to do anything but engineering. And I think that goes back to like grade six or seven. So mm. there was sure I had an interest in football and that's because <laughs> I, I had the structure to do it. And I liked organized sports, but truthfully, I always knew that I was going to be an engineer. I think you, you wafered a little bit more between, do I want to go medical? Do I want to do engineering? What, what interests me? And for me, it was always a direct correlation that I'm going to do engineering. Gotcha. Now let's switch to entrepreneurship. And so, you know, once we started the, into the spirits business first in 99, you took a little bit of a sidetrack for a little bit. And I'm going to say you, not me, um, <laughs> to open up Crowfoot Sports. So tell me why and how that happened and how that miserably failed. Sorry for the spoiler at the end, but. <laughs> well, I hope we learned from our mistakes because that was epic. So like I said, I liked organized sports. I played some hockey, although I can't say I was very good at it. I was maybe better enforcer than I was a hockey player or skater. I liked rugby. I liked football. I liked all the sports in between. I liked wrestling. I enjoyed a lot of different sports. But the local sports store had closed in the area. And mom and dad, who are you know, our mentors in a lot of ways, saw the opportunity or, or were more concerned about that this, this sports store that did a midnight move at bankruptcy was going to affect their uh, retail liquor stores by traffic or what was going to come in beside there. So my genius idea was let's open our own sports store because if the other one, literally one door laid down, failed, maybe we can do a better job and maybe I can do a better job at it. So what did we do? We created Crowfoot Sports and Crowfoot Sports was a summer bike shop and in the winter, a hockey shop. And so my idea of it was, was high quality, low price, and that we were going to do things that were on a more premium basis. So we introduced Rocky Mountain Bikes into the city of Calgary. We convinced Norco to be a sponsor. And then CCM and Bauer became our hockey lines that we offered. Except we did $1.99 skate sharpening and we did $19.95 bike tune-ups. And it did well. We actually did really well in our first, I would say, year. 
Um, of both seasons, we did extremely well. We had really talented staff that knew those sports really well. There were downhill racers for the most part that were bike techs. So totally lived in that world. We're really good at doing the upsell and convincing people why they shouldn't buy a bike from a retail, uh, retail store that, that wasn't specialized in bikes. And then on the other hand, they really knew how to size equipment for kids starting to play hockey and do other things. And that was the time before the internet. So we would take out ads and we would do flyers and we would do those kind of things. And for Zannies, which owned Sports Check and uh, some of the other major bike shops started to take notice of Crowfoot Sports. Of course, they had the buying power. So by year three, they were selling skates for less than we were purchasing them for the manufacturers. So now suddenly we couldn't compete on skates. And of course, you're always left with models with odd sizes because they make <laughs> you buy sizes from size 2 to 12 or 14. Right. So you've got last year's models. You've got your competitor now putting them on sale cheaper than us. And you know, you're buying one pair of skates, maybe if you're lucky, once every couple of years. So we went from a very successful bike, biking hockey shop to a decently successful bike shop. So we opened a second location at the time, which was called COP, where the Olympics happened in 88 in Calgary. We became a tune-up bike shop at the bottom of the hill. And in the summertime, um, you would be able to take one of our bikes from our rental shop and go up the mountain and come biking down it, downhill biking. So suddenly we were in the uh, used market and rental market. Until our competitors really took notice of us and decided to take on us on that part of the business. So the sporting business was my first and our, I mean, I'm throwing you in there with me, <laughs> our first absolute failure. And we were young, definitely below the age of 18 years old, and decided to liquidate everything to try to get out of the position that we had. Yeah, that was a failed business. It was an absolute failure. And it's something we learned from is that You've got to have a leg up on your competitors. Otherwise, don't go poke the bear because these big guys can destroy you if you're, if you're not careful. And we weren't careful. And I think also the learning that you have to actually produce something that has a value proposition that somebody else just can't come in and undercut you. Yeah. There has to be a product or a service that you're providing that somebody else can't at a lower price. It can't be just about, about that. Yeah, absolutely. And we thought our service was going to be a thing that carried us forward in the 1995, you know, the $20 bike repair or the $2 skate sharpening, but it's really tough, tough to pay your bills with that. And also if you're a big organization, you can match our prices for six months until you drown us out. And so Absolutely. it was suddenly a realization that what are, what, what value are we really giving and how are we going to go up against such a massive, massive groups that are, that have been in the business for a very, very long time to have much more revenue and deeper pockets than we did. So. Yeah, it was, it was a lesson learned and I never hope to repeat that lesson again because that's a really big blow to your ego when you, when you fail as miserably as that was. Very true. So do you think that we had any advantages growing up and living and starting our business in Calgary compared to say if we were in Toronto? Well, first and foremost, I think we had an advantage on that our, you know, I, I, was, I always find it fascinating that Warren Buffett says, first of all, I'm really lucky that I was born in the country that I was. For us, I go, yeah, I think it was, we were really lucky that we were born in Calgary. But I also think we were very lucky who our parents were because mm -hmm. our parents are our biggest supporters and biggest cheerleaders, but also not fearful of reminding us of, of the lessons and mistakes that we make. So, you know, how many, of, uh, how many people can say at the age of 16 or 17, their parents had the faith in them to do something like a bike store or listen to a business model for us and let us fail? And it's not because our family was uber wealthy. No. But it was because that, that, that dad had more of a, 
foresight and future lookings to say like, in a lot of ways, he's going to let us let us make these mistakes early so that we can succeed later. We didn't totally get it then. But when you reflect on it, he encouraged us to do our first television show up near on ETV, which I can't even remember what channel was on on Sunday afternoons for the Punjabi audience. But it got you and I so comfortable in front of camera and writing scripts and doing these things that we're really lucky who our parents are and our mom is our nurturer, right? So, so, so we had this upbringing where even if we failed, we, you know, we, we, we had the most supportive parents. And, and I think that's a big reason for our success. And shout out to mom, because dad always gets the credit. But, you know, our, our mom was, was always a very big supporter. But dad was always, always one to let us learn from our own mistakes and, and also to help critique it. So first and foremost, I think that, that, that is our number one thing in life. And we always were exposed to so much through dad, right? Our days off had gone to Pan-Canadian patrolling with him before he was laid off from the patch. And so I remember days on being excited that I would go to work or go hang out while dad's mm-hmm. working for one of the largest oil companies, which is like a combination of CP rail oil and gas and which became pan Canadian, which is now in Canada. So that to me was, is a big reason for our success. Um, but the other one is Calgary for sure. And I think that it is for us in this industry, it's because of the can do attitude. I don't think we would have been able to start a liquor business if we were in Toronto. I don't think we've been able to start a liquor business in Vancouver because it took privatization of liquor for our family to even understand what that business was. But also people were very accepting because this Alberta has this attitude of entrepreneurship and it's okay to go against the grain. I think, you know, Ontario and Toronto and and Waterloo have amazing tech startups. And so I think things have changed. But I think if you look back to 1999, when we started and, and it was, I always felt anytime we would go into a different city, it was always kind of like, oh, what's your age? And, you know, you and I were always kind of thrown off by that says, what does it matter? Look at our accomplishments. Right. But we never really felt that in Alberta, other than select few that just couldn't get over the fact that oh, we were, we were, we were brown, we were East Indian, <laughs> we were young and we were succeeding in the alcohol business. Imagine that. Uh, but that was, that was a lot far or fewer in between than necessarily. I felt like we, we, people were expecting that you're not establishment. So how are you going to succeed? So I think, I think Alberta that an Alberta advantage or just giving us the opportunity to start was a big deal because we didn't have to convince any buyers to buy our product. We were able to scrape together the dollars to start in the business and then go prove success versus the rest of the Canadian market is one that you've got to convince a single buyer that sees 200 pitches every quarter and has got to decide between you, Bacardi, Smirnoff, Diageo, Beam some of the biggest brands in the world. And why would, why would you bet on a, a brand like Mountain Crest or, or, or D's Peanut Butter Whiskey or Earning Sales Gin? It wouldn't, it wouldn't start because I wouldn't risk it if I was on their side either. Yeah, very true. And I think it's not only about maybe the city, but what was around us more than that, the small towns and the rural areas that really embraced new spirits, embraced something that wasn't a brand that they had heard out, but good bang for their buck, good quality. And so... I think being raised in Calgary is something, but our business having success in the rural areas and the small towns, which I see a lot of in Dragon's Den actually too, is that when a lot of people come up with success, they're able to try it out in smaller areas, get some honest feedback from them and kind of build it slowly but surely and then come in to be able to spend the big money on marketing budgets and a variety of other things into the city. So I do think that Absolutely. All the small towns, which there's a lot of in Alberta, 50 some, because we have, well, a line of 57 vodkas for small towns in in Alberta that really 
helped embrace the idea of something new in alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think like the concept that we all have in our mind was, is Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver, Toronto, Winnipeg, Saskatoon, New York, LA, you know, that's where our brands are going to be made, right? You can't be big in a business unless you're big there. And what we've discovered very, very early on was, hey, we can't get any traction in Calgary. We get a little bit, a little bit of traction in Edmonton, but really we've got to go where no reps visit. And guess what? When you add up that population, there's a, there's a lot that are outside of those two metropolitan areas and they're supporting our brands because, well, they just appreciate that we're there. And now consumers, when they're going camping or going to the lake in summer, are discovering our beer. And as I always like to say, you know, a $2 million campaign can really stretch you across Canada, maybe not Toronto and definitely not New York, but you get noticed. And but if you did that same campaign in New York for $2 million, uh, well, you could blow that in about 45 minutes and nobody noticed it. The, the eyes may see it, but the penetration is not there. So for us, it was a small, it was the independent. It let us prove our brands It let us make the mistakes, but not be so detrimental that we weren't able to recover. And those people are our supporters. So yeah, I mean, the 57 top vodkas that are for Alberta are basically a nod to those power of the retailers that really helped us get our start in those bars and restaurants and those places that, you know, let's face it, a pain in the ass to get to, right? It was, you know, it was a four hour drive to, to go sell five cases. Is it worth it? Uh, it would be really nice if the liquor store three minutes from our parents' house would buy from us, but weren't and didn't for a number of years until we were so big in those small areas that they couldn't pay attention. So when those that come into Dragon's Den and you know throw up big retailer names, it impresses me less because I go, that's great. And if you fail in the next six months in those stores, because it's difficult to get attention in them, your business is gone. But if you went to convenience stores that are independently owned, independent grocers, independent places, depending on your product selection, you may have a lot more success with them. And then you're building your brand uh, before you move into a big box store that really doesn't care about your story, only cares about what your sales were that quarter or that month. And it may be difficult on the budgets and tasting budgets that you have. So, I mean, I think that is a, that is a big reason for our success is we never neglected the small regional players and people. Yeah, true. So let's talk a little bit about the early days of Minhas Distillery and Brewery. Once you came in full-time and after engineering and, you know, the other things you're dabbling in that failed like Crowfoot Sports. Um, what was the, <laughs> what was the experience like for you? What do you think was the biggest challenge for you once it was a full-time gig and um, you weren't doing anything else? Okay. Well, for, for me, my path was, I did my first three years of engineering. The business was small. We were kind of growing, but not necessarily exponential. I went and did an internship with Husky Energy. Um, shout out to Husky. Um, I worked with him in the field in Unity, Saskatchewan, <laughs> which was an experience on its own, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Mm -hmm. And then I did my internship in the office. I worked for Husky for about 16 months. And you and I had that fascinating phone call. And that fascinating phone call was I was done my internship. You were done your co-op program. And what were we going to do next? And it became a moment where I think it was around my birthday, actually. That's the Calgary Herald had run a front page ad and in there had mentioned it was my birthday somehow. And that's why I remember it because a coworker of mine that didn't know that we had Mountain Crest taped it on my front door. Right. And I went, oh shit, they know we do this, right? Because, <laughs> well, you know, now I'm going to get the question, why are you working for Husky? Why aren't right. you pursuing your own? So I called you, uh, I think you who are you working for, Devon Energy at the time? Yeah. To me, I was done with the big company. 
because I felt like I had learned what I felt like I wanted to learn. And I think the opportunity was in front of us for what we wanted to do. So you and I draw cards and said, okay, we're going to tell mom and dad. And you said they have to tell mom. So I did. And you and I kind of finished our jobs there and, and went on. I finished my fourth year and knew for a fact in that final year that I was not going to continue in the traditional path of oil and gas engineering. But now we were going to give a go full time into uh, Mountain Crest, into our beer and, and distilleries business. So when I decided to do that, I said, okay, I'm all in. Except for the first thing in my life I was going to do, I was going to do nothing for two months, but think. <laughs> and that was, I uh, went straight from high school, right into engineering. That September, we built out the business plan in between that first year for me, between high school and university and what we were going to do with MCL. At that time, it was Mountain Crest Liquors. And then I suddenly said, okay, I'm done this degree. Great. Got the ring. Happy. It's over with. Mom's happy. And I don't want to do anything for the next two months, but really map out what I want to do for the rest of my life. So I didn't feel like jumping in feet first. And I said, I'm going to take the summer off, which is such a foreign concept to you in particular, my very conservative sister. And you're like, what are you going to do? I'm like, I don't know. I'm going to do the bare minimum for two months. Which you did. Which I did. I did just what I had to do. It was like I was doing six courses at university still. (laughs) And then come September, I said, okay, now it's go time. And I kind of felt like I needed a cooling off and just kind of, okay, here here I'm done as a student. I never want to take a course again. I have no interest in this, uh, in, in, in education. I feel like I've done what I wanted to do in life in that sense. And now I wanted a pause period and now I want to go hard. And so now this is what I'm excited by. This is what it is. And so for me, it was a matter of how big can we make this? What can we do? Where are the opportunities? And nobody's going to outwork us. That was the moment in time where I said, I don't know what I'm good at and what I'm bad at, but I think I got a sense. And I'm going to go into things that are least comfortable. So for me, I said, I don't like sales. I'm going to do sales. And I, I, I thought, well, and I, I'm not sure if I love marketing, but I got a I have opinions, so I'm going to run with those opinions. And we'll throw those, you and I threw those across the table to decide what we're going to do. But I feel like the most part that I'm least comfortable with is sales. So that's what I'm going to really concentrate on. And I think since you've handled sales, like you say, till, since the beginning and overseen it yep. and, and come up with our manuals and our strategy when it comes to sales. And sales is such a critical part of any company to make it work because you can have the best widget in the world or in our case, the best Punjabi Club whiskey or Arting Souls gin. You can have the best product in the world, but if you can't sell it or convince somebody else of it, it's really worth nothing. And I think there's so many companies out there that make great products, but they just don't know how to sell. Like that's how critical it is. And so how did you discover and kind of hone those sales techniques, not only for yourself, because first you were the salesperson, And then also get a team to work with you in order to do it, train them and really become one of the best in the industry. So first I copied, I used that engineering degree that I, that was so fresh and and it's not going to be in the office, but I'm like problem solving. So first and foremost, who's the best at it? And what names come up? Xerox, Pitney Bowes, Gallo. And so what did I do is I had friends or I found friends in those companies that said, Hey, I would really love for you to teach me or those that put seminars on to, to show me their sales techniques. What do they do and how do they do it? What was really interesting to me was mobile offices, cold calling, 
this wasn't a used car sales technique, right? You're going back to the same people over and over again. Mm-hmm. So it's service levels, it's working with them. And it's not necessarily about the sale of today, but what's the sale going to be in three years? Mm-hmm. So it's relationship building, but it's relationship building on a macro scale. So I just, you know, we decided the sales frequency and, and started to rank stores and create a system that was very, very structured. Right. And then really started to put that on a rotation, depending on who it was. So first and foremost was getting an understanding what was realistic. How many products could you pitch in a, in a single call? What was your follow-up going to be? Who was going to do that follow-up? And then how was it going to be? And then we would go to on-premise and we started working the same programs with them. And we learned from our mistakes, right? So it wasn't like we got out there in day one and I kind of had a great program. I had taken some from Xerox. I took some from Pitney Bowes. I took some from Gallup. I took it from other industries and said, how can I apply it here? I felt we needed to take those things from different industries and apply it to alcohol. So that was kind of how are we going to make sure we, we succeed and grow and how are we going to have our sales be, would be completely different than what the rest of the industry was. Oh, that was the other one. I didn't believe in senior vets from other companies. I only wanted people that were green. Right. People with so zero So you didn't have to re- untrain them and then retrain them. Well, because when, you, when you're 22 years old and you've got a guy that's 45, 50 years old, 30 years, 20 years in the industry, and you try to teach them a new technique, they somehow think they're there to teach you. Mm-hmm. I want you to follow my program, tweak it in a year, right? Don't tell me today that you, you know better because you've done it for 20 years. No one's seeing the exponential growth we're doing is because we're doing things so different. So for me, it was easier to train somebody that had the personality I felt or the drive, but not the, not the experience. So, and it was a matter of, uh, could they buy into the program? Could they get it? And would they see the success? And if they did, they were going to succeed in our organization versus years of experience were kind of telling me how, you know, Coca-Cola succeeded because they put a television commercial out. Well, that doesn't really matter. You look at the I am Canadian commercial for most in Canadian. Yeah, it had a lot of conversation back then, but it didn't drive sales. So to me, that's a failure. Got it. I thought you were so creative. I didn't know you didn't reinvent the wheel. You just copied other people. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, I think a big part of that is definitely what you said about finding the right people, which was really key. And then making it more nimble and efficient and understanding where we could get ahead and do things on our own in order to do that quicker and better than everybody else. Absolutely. But that takes an attitude and takes a focus, which definitely was for a very long time and still is just in different ways. So were a lot, a lot of people ask me this, so I'm going to ask you, were you ever nervous about working with me, a family member? And why, what do you think makes our partnership work for 23 years and counting? Not for one damn second. Not once did I ever worry where you and I were going to be good partners or not. But the truth is, it's because how you and I were raised and how you and I interact with each other and always have. If I ever felt that, first of all, you and I have never had a competitive edge against each other. How great is it when you can fully trust and don't need to finish the sentence because you're thinking the same way I am? Although you and I, you and my personalities are completely different, but not when it comes to philosophy of business. And not when it comes to raising your girls or mine. So on the important things, you and I don't need, we don't need to say it to each other. We were to know it. So no, I was never worried. I see other siblings aren't like us. So I can understand where they come from, where family businesses can be difficult. But for you and I, it was kind of, it was easy. I think it was always very easy because we were always very supportive. But then we also didn't differentiate things. You and I didn't have the egos for each other. 
your success, so I always defined as my success, and I know yours was the same way. So it was, it was, it's kind of a relationship where you're, you're rooting for the other person's success. I always get it like, oh, why is Manjeet the dragon, not you? And I kind of laugh. That's what I was going to ask next, too. (laughs) (laughs) I go, thank God. Okay. So are we going to tell, are we going to tell the audience how this really happened? (laughs) You go for it. (laughs) Okay. So, so for 10 years of our business, I was the face of the company. And because Manjeet didn't want to be the face of the company. What we felt at the time was as long as one of us is forward facing, the other one cannot have to go to the political dinners, go have to go to the, the consumer facing products, go to the retailers, shows, yeah. the trade shows and everything else, but really work on the business and make sure that the operations and the manufacturer is going. And that was Manjeet. And then on the other hand was didn't really want to be recognized, didn't want to be stopped anywhere. And was maybe, I wouldn't say shy. I don't think you've ever been shy. You just weren't comfortable necessarily with the attention. And then to get an email or a phone call. A phone call. Phone call from CBC's Dragon Den to Manjeet saying, you, you should try out for an audition. I'm in Toronto flying home because of our, our other, one of our other businesses. And Manjeet's in Calgary. So I'm sitting in a lounge at the Toronto Pearson Airport. Manjeet goes, guess what? I got a phone call from him. We go, oh, Where? She goes, CBC, they're asking for me to come and do an audition for Dragon's Den. So cool. She goes, no, no, you should stay in Toronto longer and just go to the audition yourself. I go, oh, no, 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 no. First of all, I think you're, this is your opportunity. Um, you should be doing that. Manjeet kind of said, well, you know, I don't know. I don't necessarily know if I want to. I have young girls. I can't go. Right. There, there's all these reasons why this isn't going to work. And what's the travel schedule? Like, and we knew other dragons, other dragons are our friends. And so, you know, we kind of had an understanding or sense of what it was. And actually, we were avid watchers of the show. We always enjoyed uh, dragons. And so we kind of had a sense of what it was. We also own a television and film production company. So we understand what that production would be. But I, I, find, I got it Manji's heartstring. And I said, you know, I really think that an audience needs a female ethnic dragon. And I think that for your girls, and I had my daughter, I think, I think at the time was six months and yours were one and three, one and three years old. So they're, you know, they're, they were a little bit older than mine, but all girls, I've got two girls, Manji's got two girls. We need strong female role models. And I think you're going to do a phenomenal job on Dragon's Den. So I think you need to get on an airplane and co. And so that was the heartstring I was trying to pull at. And I said, also, I've been the face of the organization for 10 years. It's your turn now. So she Manjeet reluctantly said yes on the phone, but I did not believe it for one second that she was actually going to go show up. So my next phone call was to my father. And I go, Dad, how do you feel about going to Toronto with, my, with, with Manjeet? And Dad goes, why? I go, well, she has an audition for Dragonson, but I believe she'll go to Toronto. She'll probably do some other business meetings, but I don't actually think she's going to go to the audition. And Dad goes, oh, I don't know if I believe that. I go, no, trust me. I don't think she's going to. But if you're there, she's got no way of not going on it. So that's how Dragons then started. You went to the audition and you came out and uh, one of the other Dragons of the time was, was in the audition with you. Um, that Joe Memran, yeah. Joe Memran from Club Monaco and Alfred Sung and, and Joe, Joe Fresh. Fresh. And so you came out and, and said, I'm not sure if I got that. And I go, no, were you yourself? Were you yourself? And, the, right. and he said, yes. And it's because my only note to you was, just be yourself. Don't filter yourself. Be exactly who you are and give your opinion. Right. Because we've been through enough up and downs in business that if you do that, it just shows a wealth of knowledge compared to others because we've been doing this for 
by, you know, 15 years by the time. And so I go, oh, no, you're definitely getting the call back. But number one, you know, I better plan for that schedule because it's happening. And that's how you ended up on Dragonstone. Very true. I still have your audition tape, by the way. Um, oh, God. I, I, I have it. I've saved it. Um, I will use it um, when I see where it is because it was fantastic. Molly had, had given it to me and I've saved it because I thought that that, it was, that was exactly what, what it took mm-hmm. and the backstory for it. So why Manjita Dragon and not me? Because it is the best and the most awesome feeling to watch you on that show. And I will support you in every which way. But I think for Canada and I think for the world, a strong-minded, intelligent female is much more needed than a strong male voice. I think it's much more representative of what Canada and the world needs than, than anything else. And so for, for me, for that reason, is the best reason for you to do it. And you're good at it. You're very, very good at it. Sometimes I think you can be nicer. <laughs> well, lucky enough, you always there while we're shooting, but behind the scenes. So therefore you yes. can't tell me that when I'm in the den, that's right. tell me that only when I leave. But <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And so that was one of our deals. One of the deals for Manjeet was, is that, that we had was, is that, well, I'm not going to go live in a hotel for three to four weeks and live in that world. And, and so our agreement was, I will be there for as much as I can be. And so we rotate in family, but I'm usually the consistent ones that's there so that there's some normalcy to it, but also we're able to discuss the different businesses and the trends that you're seeing for the year and what, what the investment philosophy is or not the investment philosophy for the years. Agreed. So let's go to all the things you do outside your day job. So you work and been on the board of the Calgary Stampede and do a lot of help with their strategic direction. So why is the stampede important to you as representative of the community, but also as an advocate for agriculture? Because that's really what the Calgary Stampede is. It's not for the outside looking world. It might look like it's, you know, a place for the rodeo and lots of fun rides and drinking, which it is, but it has a bigger purpose. Yeah. So so for me, first and foremost, which is a philosophy that we've always gotten from from our family was leave this place better than you than you had it, number one. Number two, I think one of the things that we always have to justify to people is why do you live in Calgary? But a lot of my time spent in the U.S., right? So I spent a lot of time in L.A., I spent a lot of time in Miami, I spent a lot of time in Chicago, Wisconsin. You know, obviously our celebrity partnerships with Gene Simmons and Paul Feig and basketball stars all do those things. But why Calgary? And Calgary, you know, first and foremost, was because it's a great place to raise, raise a family. And it's an amazing place to have a business. So for that, though as how do we do things that are well-rounded? So first and foremost, STEM, Women in Science and Engineering was a big one for me. So Beakerhead, which is a mashup of engineering and science, was a really important cause that I wanted to get involved in volunteer-wise. The other one was, is that what are some of the values of the Calgary Stampede or Calgary in general that, that I can help with? So how do, we, how do we take it away from just a oil and gas city that is sometimes seen from the outside, which it's not, but that's what it's seen as. And what parts of a lot of parts that I like. And one of the answers I landed on was a Calgary Stampede. Because of our love for agriculture and being in the agriculture business, you know, beer comes from barley and our wheat comes from, our, our vodka comes from wheat, is it's important for Canada to be a, to be a world player on, in the agriculture world. And agriculture may not necessarily be as sexy of an industry as tech or alcohol or other things, but it is one of the most important ones on a global scale. And so 
that's where I felt like I could lend a hand to the, to the Calgary Stampede and be involved and get really excited by it. So it was one of those community initiatives where I felt like it enhances the province and in Canada and brings people together. It's a lot of fun and there's a lot of good parts that are there. And it's not just rodeo rides and strange food like cricket, hot dogs or corn dogs <laughs> and all the other things I will not eat. But it represented something bigger to me. So it was important to be involved. But also, I get to learn a lot, too, because how often are you on a board of a billion dollar non-for-profit organization? Right. So the BMO expansion will make it one of the largest trade convention centers in Canada. It's the largest rodeo and, and drawing of attraction and, and recognizing the changing dynamic in Canada and, and who comes to the Stampede. So there's all these wonderful things that I get to be on the forefront of and conversations of agriculture um, that I would never be able to before. But even down to the simpler things I learned where I've never been exposed to pension financing and trusts. And those are the things I pay a lot of attention to because where else in our industry have I ever had to learn that, right? I'm, I'm, but I get to at this board level and I get to contribute to, um, to these kind of things. So for me, it was important in, in, in a special board and something that I'm very proud to dedicate a lot of time and, and, and brain trust to, to, to make it work. So first and foremost, it's community. And so it's much more than simply writing a check to an organization that you and I believe in on a philanthropy level, but it's more about giving back in a way that I think is molding a really important organization. And, and that's where I felt with Beaker had previous to that as well, was it was important to expose young minds to science and engineering, but it, with this mashup of art and say, you may be really good at art and not realize how great you are at engineering and science, because our education system always tries to keep those separate. And especially for females, where we know in elementary schools, they're stronger in math, but somehow societal or, or in there as, as years go on, they somehow feel like they're not. And mm -hmm. so for me, those are community aspect things that I think are really important. And we have, to, we have to work hard in making sure that communities grow and people have opportunities to interact with people that are not just their neighbors uh, in their same neighborhood, but in the city and, and in the province they live in. Very true. I have to also ask, why did you start? an airline, Canada Jetlines, <laughs> all over the news. I haven't had the pleasure yet to go on the airline since it's two weeks old, but I know it's been a long time coming. So why was it important for you and the Canada Jetlines team to provide a new option in the Canada North American skies? Yeah, so I've always loved aviation. I've always thought in... in, in we used to go to a lot of air shows as kids. <laughs> we used to go to a lot of Airtree air and Avisford. And oh, yeah, we went to a lot of air shows. Uh, so I've always had a fascination with the skies. I also feel like we spent a lot of time in the skies. My, my joke is, you know, I, that where's your home? I go, well, sometimes it's on seat 2A and sometimes it's 12D, just really depending on the airplane and where I'm flying to. So it was something that I felt that could it be done better? Could it be done different? But recognizing, you know, did that make sense? And, you know, aviation is a complicated thing. But once you get jet fuel into your blood, I understand it never leaves. And no, no individuals should start their own airline. There's enough documentaries that you should watch and those that are there. So I didn't want to learn that way. But I saw this opportunity with Canada Jetlines and some friends that were serious about it. And so that's kind of how we decided that this was a good opportunity. Canada Jetlines had tried to take off 10 years ago, had nothing to do with the current group and me, but had failed miserably. And because regulation is heavy, but you know what? We're really good at it, regulated industries. Yeah. 
We, we, we understand the regulated industry from alcohol and that it extends to cannabis. And we've understood that from the television side of the business. So that didn't scare me. And it was exciting to learn. And so that was kind of where I said, well, I'm, I'm willing to join this amazing team. And I think we can, we can do something different for Canada. Mm. Carrying forward with the same recipes that we've had in other industries was maybe there's an opportunity for Canada Jetlines. And so what was the philosophy I liked of an airline was, well, number one, customer service. I don't feel like you should have to have status of an airline to get respect. True. And I think, I think as every, no airline intentionally does that, but over time, that's what has occurred. And so it's, you're not in, you're not in zone group one that you're boarding. It's kind of like, no one's going to help you with your bag. Why? Why is that? Why do I see a mother with two children coming onto an airplane? You've got amazing flight crews with smiling on their faces, but nobody's helping with their bags. Why is that? How, how does that exist? That is not Canadian politeness. That's not who we are as Canadians. Why has that become normal? So that so I felt that maybe there's an opportunity for that. And then the other one was pricing. Is there is there opportunity in pricing? Which no, not so bottom that when I get on an airplane, you charge me for a carry on. You <laughs> don't serve me a beverage on board because sometimes you just get to an airport, you don't realize how thirsty you are. You sit on your airplane and you go, "Oh man, I'm hungry," and I didn't realize it. A little bit of stress of flying, getting checked in, getting through security, not knowing where your gate is, finally getting to your gate, boarding your airplane, and now you discover, "Oh, I'm actually hungry." And now there's nothing on board. Well, that's not a great experience. And so said, well, can we improve some of those things? Also, can we change the economics where, you know, you and I as kids, what was our vacation? Our vacation for a lot was getting in a van and driving to... Duncan, BC. (laughs) We picked Calgary to Duncan, right? We did eight (laughs) hours from Calgary to Vancouver. We'd try to make sure we catch that ferry and get to Duncan where our grandparents were. So, and so we would go and that was our vacation. But we didn't really ever fly to Duncan or Nanaimo or Victoria. We always drove, mm-hmm. right? When we got older and you and I decided to go on our own, then we would fly. But as a family of four, we always drove. Yep. So I said, so can we change the economics where a family of four or six can get on an airplane and go and change the economics to go to Florida, to go to Vegas, to go to Disneyland? Is there a way that we can make this more cost-effective? Can we do bundles with different places? So that you can get there, get your car rental, have it as a package, but still be economical versus driving from Toronto to Orlando. Can you go to New York and, and can you go on a bachelorette party? And there's not a few that can, can everybody afford the flight, right? So right. are those opportunities that exist? And the management team at Canada Jetline said, yeah, we can actually make those economics worse, but we're going to make money on every seat. We're not, we're not, we're not lost leaders. We're not going to sell you a seat for something less than our costs. And so that's why I got excited by Canada Jetlines and I got excited by the beverage cart program because you know what? Sometimes it's, a, it's an affordable luxury to have a nice drink on the airplane. So why not be able to pour an old fashioned and make a real cocktail instead of having always to mix it with pop or soda? Why can't we offer root beer on board? It's, it's, it's a treat for sure, but it's free. Well, imagine that. So instead of getting a, a soda mm-hmm. product, we can get you a specialty product made with cane sugar. So, but great for us and great for me because... It's our products on board that consumers are trying on the airplane. So there's a justification in, in a lower pricing and, 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 and give passing that on consumers. So it was experience, it was opportunity, and it was something that was challenging and new. Could it be done? Mm. Well, I can tell you're passionate about it and I look forward to getting on board. Well, Ravindra, thanks for joining me. And I hope our listeners learned more about the Minhas siblings today. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you like what we're doing on the show, be sure to follow us, leave us a like, rating, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to tune in next week for an all-new episode with another great guest 
for more insightful conversation. We'll see you again next time. Cheers.